This morning we continue uh, in Matthew as we have for the last quite a few weeks and as Garth read we're up to Matthew chapter 7 um, verses 1 to 12. This was in the Age newspaper last week. (coughs) For a churchgoer it is utterly familiar yet eerily different. There is a polished urban man up the front holding a microphone and behind him is a large screen to display words for songs and any video messages. Next to that is a band who is much more casually dressed. The assembly unfolds in the normal format. Words of welcome, readings, congregational readings, music, more music, a message, a communal greeting and then a rather embarrassed plea for cash in the collection hat and then a closing song, after which an impressive homemade cake is shared. But there is no cross, no altar, no prayer, no Eucharist and definitely no God. Welcome to Sunday Assembly, part atheist church, part foot stomping good time. This is a direct quote from the age. Yes, you read this correctly, an atheist church explicitly designed to mimic a church service but without the myth and superstition. Melbourne Branch held its third monthly meeting last Sunday morning in South Melbourne. A pleasant hour of fellowship and a shared purpose for the 40 or so mostly middle-aged people who made the trek from as far away as Croydon and the Diamond Valley. These are a few of the comments that are on the bottom of the page of this article. It says, will the first non-church of daft ideas please come to order? Even non-believers are devoted to the secret religion of money, so not much point really. It's just a matter of time before people start howling over who is the purest and most logical form of atheism. It's already happened. Atheists like myself who do not demonise religion as an unrelenting evil, are frequently questioned as to whether we really are the atheists whose cultists who worship at the feet of Dawkins. The most positive response ironically came from a believer who wrote, I wish you all the best. One of the good things about being a Christian in our atomised society is the communal sense of belonging. We meet together for worship, social events and studies. We look after each other and try our best to do good to our immediate community and wider world. If you can do such things, then that would be wonderful. This is happening in Melbourne. News to me, I have to say, but that was direct out of the age. But it will not match the appeal of the church. The key thing in the presence of the living Christ in our community and as the focus of our worship, it remains a challenge for us not to become a group of people who like doing the same thing, but to keep the Christian challenge at the heart of our life. Certainly those who came found the Sunday Assembly a pleasant and congenial gathering, enriched by deliberate absence of religious bashing, but clearly developing depth and community will take time. The application of the day's theme was lend a hand, was hardly sacrificial, it amounted to see if you can do something for someone sometime. Perhaps the most glaring contradiction was contained in the chorus of the concluding song, which was a George Michael song, You've Got to Have Faith. (laughs) Ironical, isn't it? (coughs) 
I'm not sure if you've had an audit at your workplace, but um, I found the Sermon on the Mount a little like an audit on my Christian character. It examines your character and it shows your motives. It gives you a point of reference or something to measure how you're travelling. Now, having had not the pleasure of being audited in my business, I'm told by people that have had it done that the auditor comes into your business, he opens up your books, he accesses all your paperwork and he goes through with a fine-tooth comb, double-checking, sometimes triple-checking to make sure everything's okay. They check you're not cheating the system, taking shortcuts and they make sure you're not being fraudulent. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is an audit for a Christian, isn't it? It helps you see how your spiritual life is tracking and it gives you a reference point. You know, an audit, when it comes onto your business, is sometimes costly because you may not have done the right thing. The business may have been fraudulent in things it did, intentionally or unintentionally. And sometimes there are penalties and judgments handed down and consequences apply. The business may be found wanting and they need to make changes. This may not be comfortable for the business. I mean, you can just just ask the Essendon Football Club at the moment. That's what they're having, isn't it, an audit? Sometimes hard questions need to be asked and it's the same with a spiritual audit. It may be uncomfortable. Changes may need to be made and we may be found wanting in certain areas. We may need to ask ourselves some hard questions. I know Garth read it but I'm just going to read the verses again that we're looking at this morning. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your sons ask for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give good gifts to those who ask you. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Great words there, really. The more you read them, the more they come alive and you grasp and understand them. You know, judging for others, judging others, for some people has become a sport. They approach it with great zeal and really seem to enjoy it, don't they? It can come in many forms, many names, can be done in many ways, but call you what it, call you what it want, what you want. It is never right to stand in a, as an unrighteous judge. 
I believe when you do this, one of two things are going on. You're saying to yourself, I am better than you. I wouldn't have done that. You shouldn't do that. The other thing you're doing is you're standing, you're placing yourself as God. You're saying, I know what I should, I know what you should be doing and I'm superior. Don't form an opinion hastily or harshly. We are generally too quick to form a judgement. We, we're happy to draw a line in the sand but sometimes or many times we may not know what's going on in those people's lives at that moment. Try showing some grace. Stephen Covey, many of you may have heard of, who's a, an author and he's got a book that I've read and it's called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in the book there he tells a story, of he's, on, he's in New York and he's on a train in the subway and he's sitting there quietly going through station after station. And it stops at a station there and a man, bedraggled, unshaven, looks a bit unruly, hops in the train with his two children. Before the train's pulled out of the station, the children run amok. They're running up and down the train, they're yelling and screaming, even grabbing newspapers out of people's hands that are reading them. As this guy sat down next to Stephen Covey, he thought to himself, what's going on here? He said, I could see as I looked around people getting agitated and frustrated. And he said, to be honest, I was starting to feel a little irritated myself. I couldn't believe what was going on. I couldn't believe it there. I assume their father was sitting there just letting these children run wild and he did nothing about it. After a while, he said, I got that agitated. I turned to the man and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you wouldn't mind controlling them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come conscious of the situation for the first time and softly said, Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. You see, we just came from the hospital where their mother died. I don't know what to think and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Stephen Covey called this a paradigm shift. I think that's how we need to look at things sometimes. We need to step out of what may seem an obvious thing and shift our thinking. Maybe we need to try a little grace. In James chapter 4, verse 11, this is what it says. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Jesus is saying, don't treat people like that. Don't be like a Pharisee. Don't be a hypocrite. I created them in my likeness. Don't be so quick to put your judgments on other people. You know, your vision may well be blinded by the plank in your eye. In my experience of people making judgment calls on other people, most of the time it's not about some great theological misdemeanour or some great serious issue. It's generally about little things that annoy us or people that we find difficult or annoying. Mostly insignificant issues, things that we should not even be concerned about that we get involved in. 
You see, the problem, it's not between you and them. The problem is between you and God. Not that it's God's fault. If you find yourself sitting in an unjust judgement on others, you have not got your relationship right with God. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It just means that you're you're not walking in step with God. Because if you are in step with God, you know that others are made in his likeness. They are imperfect like you. And God loves them just the same. And he loves you just the same as he loves them. And he extends his grace to you and you should do the same to his sons and daughters. Then you can say, that's not maybe what I would have done. It's not how I would choose to live. But that's okay. One of the reasons we are unable to do this is that we're blinded. One commentator said we need eye surgery from the great physician. When we read about the Pharisees, we tend to sneer and laugh, don't we? We look at them and think, how could they be so stupid? How could they be so out of touch with what God is wanting them to do? How have they moved so far away from God's ideal? How do they not notice what they're doing? It's easy, isn't it? They were so concentrated on what other people were doing, they'd taken the focus of what they should be doing. They were so concerned about portraying an outward um, facade that they had lost what was going on inside. They had become blind to their own issues. They had concentrated and spent too much time on on others and they had become unaware of their own. This is a Bible. This is a mirror. It's a poor interpretation of a mirror, but it is a mirror. And God said how we should live our lives. We're supposed to have a Bible in one hand and a mirror in the other. You read the Bible and you look into the mirror. That will tell you how you should live. Not how others should live, but how you should live. But the problem is, we don't always live like that. We live with these on. (laughs) And all these do are magnify things. And when you have these on, you can't have the Bible and a mirror in your hand. You're concentrating on other people. When I look out there, I see all the imperfections. And that's what it does. They magnify other people's problems. We honestly, we need to take up the mirror and the Bible and then we'll be able to take the plank out of our own eye. If you have the Bible in one hand and the mirror in the other, you'll become far more aware of the things that you need to deal with in your own life. God will show you what issues that you need to deal with. He will use the Bible as a mirror and help you to deal with the things that he knows you need to deal with. You know, the Bible, it's the great perspective giver. It can be encouraging, it can challenge you, it can pick you up when you're down, 
and it can take you down when you're up if it needs to. But it also can sit quietly on the shelf and do nothing. In uh, one of the American preachers said America's become the country of the sunburnt Bible. They sit up on the back parcel shelf of a car from Sunday to Sunday. And that's reality, isn't it? It can be for us as well. In Romans 2 it says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgement on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgement do the same things. Now we know that God's judgement against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgement on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgement? You know, Jesus is not saying there is no time for judging. There is times because we have to make uh, discerning judgement calls through our life. It's a reality. And in verse 6 it says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And he's saying, be wise. You need to make just judgments, discerning judgments. Certain things are not always appropriate for people at certain times. You know, even as you come on a Sunday morning, you should sit and make discerning judgments of what you hear. I remember Tracy and I were married and we had two children. They were preschool age and we got to the point where we'd never done a will and we had to do a will. So we had this guy come around to our house and they go through the usual list of questions, you know, what are your assets, what are your debts, what are your, all the things that you own and half own and don't own anything of. And I remember going through all that and to be honest I wasn't really caring too much about who inherited what of mine. I mean I wasn't going to be here. I didn't care who drove my car after I'm not here. Not an issue to me. Or my any other possession. Then came the difficult question. Who do you leave your children to? As I said I couldn't care too hoots who inherited my house or my car but I do care who I left my children to. First, you've got to find someone willing to take them because they actually liked me at that stage so it was a little different. <laughs> I had no, no issue in um, leaving my earthly possessions but I did find this a difficult question to answer. Then we had to make a judgement call. The two most precious things we had on earth, who would we leave them to? How do you do that? You need to make a serious judgement call when you get to that point. Such as, will those people care for them? Will they watch over them, protect them, do all the things that I would have done for them? And then would they model Christian values? Would they take them to church? Would they create a pleasant family life for them? You know, these were difficult discerning judgement calls that you need to make in life sometimes. And they're not easy ones, but you need to make them and you need God's help to make them. The assumption is made that if you have a plank in your own eye, your vision is inhibited. 
and you need to let God, the great physician, help you remove it. And then only then are you able to help others. Then you can be discerning in the way you handle the holy things of God. Then you will be better able to assess the condition of the heart of people before you share the precious pearls of the Bible. You know, if you think, you read through here and you think, by sheer willpower or strength, I can live out the Sermon on the Mount. You've missed the point. It's only through God's power and strength that you can do this. What what God is saying here is you need to change from the inside. Don't be like the Pharisees or a hypocrite who have tried to show outwardly that they were living the right way. You know, you don't physically have a plank in your eye, but you may spiritually. It's not a physical thing, it's it's something that is not seen by others, (coughs) as in a physical way. The next few verses, I think, help us here. When he says, ask, seek and knock, what he's saying is you need to live out the Sermon on the Mount. You need to ask for help and strength to do this. You need to earnestly seek me continually to get righteousness that goes beyond outward living. (coughs) We need to live from changes from within. During my holidays, I normally like to read a book at Christmas. And last year, I got a book that I'd wanted to read for a while and it was called Longitude. Not sure if anybody's read it. It's an interesting book though. And it's, I'm not going to try and explain it because I'll really confuse you, but it's about a guy who invented um, a clock that could be used at sea. So this is in the early 1700s, so it wasn't like you had a wristwatch or an iPhone or anything like that. And the reason that it was crucial was for navigation because ships, they could work out the latitude easily but not the longitude. It's a very interesting book, as I said, and many things fascinated me in this book. But one thing that really struck me was um, that hundreds of years ago, one person in this book, for 40 years, his job, or he declared it his job, was he would get up or stay up each night and document the movement of the stars. So for 40 years, he would get up, or whatever he did, get out the equivalent of his pen and pad and just watch the movement of the stars. He could tell which star would move in which direction, in which season, where it would be, what height it would be above the, the um, equator. He just, you know, he knew that that well, that it was um, something of his life's work. You know, I don't, if you're in your mid-twenties and you turned up to work on Monday and your boss said to you for the next 40 years, I want you to sit out the front of this office and watch the people go past and document this. I mean, you'd think he'd go mad, wouldn't you? You know, I reckon in this day and age, most of us couldn't do it for 40 days. Yet this guy did it for 40 years. The reason that struck me, I think, was I thought, imagine if we could apply that rationale or principle to our prayer life. Imagine if we could apply it to our Bible reading, our time with God. You know, sometimes 
you read about the older guys, you know, hundreds of years ago and their great prayer life and, you know, some would say, you know, they had would spend an hour or two in the morning praying before they went and did their day's work. And I, you wonder, where have all the prayers gone? I, I, there are still some around, but I think it's one thing that we have, to a large extent, abandoned, that that's a, a reasonable idea. Howard Hendricks, uh, the American author and speaker, often talks about he runs a uh, men's seminar weekend and he said, you know, thousands of American men will drive halfway across the country, sitting on these meetings for hours and then drive home at the end and yet from Sunday to Sunday they won't pray or pick up their Bible, the majority of them, yet they're willing to do that. You do wonder where have all the prayers gone, don't you? He asks, where has the inclination to pray, to prayer gone? Where is our internal desire to pray? And not, I mean to pray because we think it's the right thing, but a desire to pray. The real deep down desire inside us to pray. The prayer that we would pray to God that would help us to become people like the Sermon on the Mount that he asks us to be. How you pray to God is a direct reflection of your understanding of God. You know, God is gracious, he is loving, he is merciful and he gives good gifts to his children. One commentator that I read, he said this, God answers all my prayers the same way I would answer them if I had his wisdom, his power and his love. I'll read that again. God answers all my prayers the same way I would answer them if I had his wisdom, his power and his love. Ask, seek and knock. When my children were preschool age, I would spend a bit of time working at home. and It was difficult to find a quiet place even though I had an office or a study in the house. There was people around coming and going and just noise going on and I'm one of those people in a reasonably quiet place to work. So I found this old desk that we had in the garage and thought what I'm going to do is underneath our house, you can walk underneath, it's quite good, it's got a dirt floor but it's warm and quiet and had some lights so I thought that's a good idea. So what I did, I took that desk down and put it under the house and got a chair, had some lights, perfectly quiet for a while. Sometimes I would hear some bit of ruckus going on upstairs but it wasn't really an issue, it was pretty quiet. Some, occasionally I could hear the kids calling out my name. Then one day I was sitting down there working and I heard the word Dad quite audible. Maybe, I'm not sure what it was, but, you know, did I really hear that? Then I heard it again. What had happened was that the kids had figured out over my desk was the ducted vent and if they pulled up the grill out of the floor and put their head in there, they could talk to me like they were down there and Tracy couldn't hear them, so there was no problem. So that didn't work, did it? 
So then I had to change my tactic. So what I did was I would ignore them. Or sometimes I'd be on the phone and couldn't answer them. So then what they would do, they'd come looking for me. And sometimes I'd be on the phone and they would just be standing next to me under the house there. They'd seek me out. Eventually I gave up on this idea and moved back into the office in the house. But I thought I've got a plan. (laughs) This one will work, I guarantee. So what I did, I took the handle off the office door (laughs) and I would shut the door from the inside, no handle on the outside. What do you think happened? knock on the door. (laughs) I could not not be found. Ask, seek and knock. You know, I think this, when I read through this, I think this resembles my my Christian walk with God. Sometimes I feel I'm standing next to God. And a lot Excuse me. And all I've got to do is speak in a quiet voice and he's there. Sometimes there's some distance between God and myself and I've got to go and seek him out. And sometimes it feels like there's a wall there and I've got to knock on the wall and he will open the door. Whatever state you're in with God this morning, he's accessible to you. You may have God standing feel like he's right beside you and you can just ask him. You may need to seek him out or you may need to knock on the door. You know, he wants to give you good gifts and he will give you good gifts. Some of the gifts he gives you may not be comfortable but if if you are a child of God, these verses apply to you. In John 1.12 it says, Yet all who did receive him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The next couple of verses demonstrate his love for his children. It says, How much more, even though we are inherently evil, how much more will our Father give us perfect gifts? No gift can surpass the gift that God has given us, his Son. It is the perfect gift and nothing will ever surpass it. These verses do not mean that God will give us whatever we desire or want because he only gives us good gifts. We ask out of ignorance or selfish desires many times. You know, if a young child (coughs) said, please give me a poisonous snake, as a good father you wouldn't give it to them, would you? Same way as if my kids, when they were young, said, give me a Mars bar for breakfast. You wouldn't give it to them because it's not good for them. Neither would God give us those things. My understanding is that God only gives good gifts. They're sometimes difficult, sometimes they're uncomfortable and sometimes they're extremely challenging but God only gives good gifts. In James 1, 2-7 it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. You know, Matthew 7, 1-12 tell us that if you let God remove the plank from your eye, you will be able to get beside others who may need some help removing something from their eye. Then you will be discerning on how you use God's word. By praying and spending time with God, you will gain a better understanding of God, which will help you pray more effectively. Then in verse 12, it sums it all up. You know, my younger years, my theory on this verse was if I was good to others, my life would be easier. While there is some truth to that, it's not what it's about. What it's saying is if you use the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount as a template for your Christian life, you will want to do the right thing to others. Not because of what you may get out of it, because God asks you to do it. Not as an outward act like the Pharisees may have done, but deep down in your heart you believe that we were made in his image. He loves us all equally and that's the way he wants us to live. You know, the story I said at the beginning, um, you know, you can portray yourself as a church, you can have all the outward looks of a church, you can have the trappings, you can go through the formalities of a church, but unless there's God in the church and unless you let him work through it, it's nothing more than a social club, is it really? And that's the challenge for us, I think, to be changed from the inside to become the people that God truly wants us to be. Let's pray. Dear Lord, this morning as we come together and worship you, we thank you for everything you have done for us. We thank you for the perfect gift that you gave us and we know and acknowledge that you do want to continually give us good gifts and we thank you for that. We pray now as we go out during the week that you will help us to be uh, people with a Bible and a mirror in our hand looking at the things that we need to do and concentrate on what we need to do and that will involve helping others and we thank you for that. We pray that you'll help us to take our sight and focus off others' imperfections and the things that they do and help us to look to you for everything we do. Amen.